Great. Well, thank you all for coming back again this week. Um, I want to remind everybody that tonight is an informational session and uh, no public comment is scheduled then for that reason. Uh, we will go through or I'll go through a COVID-19 up situation update. And uh, I want to thank again, Dr. Weissar for joining us again this week to be able to provide information about the uh, Frederick Health um, update. And then we have some old business items to review and then to uh, schedule next week's meeting. So without further ado, I am going to go through the screen share. Can you all see the big screen? So what we have here is uh, much like the prior weeks. You can see throughout the United States, high community transmission. Uh, what's changed since last week is this purple bar represents the percent of samples that have been subtyped that are Omicron. So we see that is almost all of the samples that have been subtyped. And that matches with uh, uh, what we're seeing here locally if we look at the S-gene dropouts from the laboratory specimen. That's a little technical, but it seems like that's the case here in Frederick County as well. Our positivity rate and our case rate, so case rate still up at 227, uh, positivity rate just under 30. We continue to um, um, have the cases increase, looking at 523 in the last 24 hours. Um, this is what it looks like for those of you who take a look at our website every day, and it compares the black line as Frederick County, the green line is the statewide, and you see for the seven-day average percent positive rate. We are above where the state average is, uh, and we are trending as the state is down a little bit the last couple days for the percent positive. And then when we look at the case rate per 100,000, the seven-day moving average, again, Frederick County is in the black there, and we are above the state average, and both the state average and Frederick County are trending down um, which is the direction we definitely want to see. If you want to see an example of the age ranges, um, so we have uh, 0 to 14, 65 plus. The green here, the highest, so this is the seven-day moving average of confirmed cases, so the greatest number of confirmed cases by day is represented by the 25 to 44-year-old age group and the 45 to 64 and the lowest is the 65 plus group. When we look at the projected cases going out, so one week, two weeks, three weeks, uh, the, if there is some um, hopeful news here, but it's not enough to, take, um, uh, to say we can take the day off yet, and that is looking at the projected numbers of new cases per week, uh, last week, I think three weeks out, the projection was for 11,000 or so, uh, and we're at the 10,000 um, now, so it's downgraded a little bit. But still, when we consider that uh, the numbers of cases that were seen in a day compared to numbers that we had seen in a week before, uh, so it still represents a tremendous number of individuals who we anticipate will be testing positive. And I should also note that uh, these are the results that are uh, 
reported, you know, so the projected cases are based on results that are reported. And as we have more and more people who are uh, performing those at-home tests and the results aren't being reported, then that does uh, skew subsequent weeks, uh, making uh, uh, the projections perhaps a little bit lower than what the actual numbers will be um, when that shift occurs. But for now, those projections have still been pretty good. Um, and when we look at the deaths, so the, this is by month. Uh, and according to the Maryland Department of Health, they have uh, uh, sent us the numbers representing the persons uh, from Frederick County who had died in the month of December during the time period when their data was not being uh, uh, sent. So they say that is now up to date in terms of the numbers. So you see, looking at 24 in December, uh, while it doesn't sound like um, a large number, I mean, it is 24 individuals, and uh, we're still seeing um, uh, 19 so far this month in January, and as you know, January, we're only halfway there. Uh, and uh, But like last week, one of the important Notes here, though, is that when we look at who's being impacted this year compared to last year, when we look at the numbers of deaths and the numbers of cases in the nursing homes and assisted living facilities, we're seeing many fewer deaths in those facilities. And this is another way of displaying it. Um, so what you see here, it's the deaths by week. And so uh, the light blue are long-term care facilities, so that's nursing homes and assisted living facilities. And you see early on in the pandemic, it was almost all the long-term cares and nursing homes. We had some in the hospital, hospitals, the orange, um, uh, home, hospice, other. And so when we go to um, where we are here, so vaccines came on the scene around this time period. And so persons started to be vaccinated, especially the nursing homes and assisted living facilities, started to be vaccinated uh, the beginning of January. And we saw a decline in the nursing home population at that point, but then also for the hospital, hospitalized groups. So that might have just been coincident with the cases. But what we see now, though, when we look at the deaths, um, persons who have come from a long-term care facility or an assisted living facility, it's a much lower uh, number of the deaths or, and proportion of the deaths. Um, and for outbreaks in schools, so this is um, what is currently on the state's website for outbreak-associated cases in schools. I do have to say that the definition of an outbreak-associated uh, school case has changed over time. Um, so here is the FCPS dashboard that gives more information and these are um, the positive cases and uh, this is for the date of 1-3. Um, so you see a dramatic increase following uh, the winter break for the numbers of cases in students and then staff. Staff at 198 at that point and students and these were results again. So on one three, so that represents, from what I understand, represents what people had reported to the school system 
uh, during break. Uh, and this is, I have this in here just as a reminder that, so our case numbers, they're setting the record highs, uh, and those case numbers are just from the confirmed laboratory test results. It's not including people's at-home self-reported test results. So the true number of cases is higher than what is uh, uh, being shown. Um, and then even more people are not even being tested. Uh, I'll start with the hospitalizations now. Also, this is another way of looking at the impact. So this is uh, from the CDC. So this is uh, not specific to Frederick or Maryland. So this is from their nationwide COVID net look. And I added this, though, just for some perspective of the age groups that are impacted by hospitalization. Uh, so we have the, the red here is the 65 plus uh, persons. And uh, so it goes 0 to 4, 5 to 17, 18 to 49. And so not surprisingly, we see an age, you know, uh, it goes by age groups here and uh, for the greatest burden being the older ages. Uh, but we definitely see where those, uh, the rates per 100,000, where uh, it's not as big of a gap as it had been at the peak last year when we look at the 65-year-olds, 65 and above, compared to the 50 to 64-year-olds. And nationwide, that number's coming down for all those groups, except for the 0 to 4-year-olds. That's where there's a little blip up. But for the other groups, especially the older uh, ones, there's been a dramatic decline nationwide uh, since, uh, actually, that's since Thanksgiving on. And then our local numbers uh, for the hospitalizations. Uh, again, this is what would be familiar to everybody who takes a look at our website, where you can see the total numbers of beds here in the blue. Uh, and the purple here is the total number of ICU beds occupied by persons with COVID-19 uh, diagnosis. And what is clear is that we are far above wherever you know, our peak uh, had been before, so far and above that in terms of the hospitalizations uh, and our, <clears throat> the number occupied in ICU beds continues to be high. So while it's not that same dramatic uh, percent change or, or increase over the peak before, so fortunately we're not seeing that same you know, percent increase here in these beds, but what we do see is that it's been a steady, relatively high occupancy of the ICU beds by persons who are COVID positive. And so now this is one I'd like to... Um, uh, invite Dr. Weissar to share any comments that you'd like to about um, the Frederick Health System. Yeah, thanks once again for the opportunity. I have a few um, thoughts we put together here, and then I'll be happy to take some questions. So um, we continue to see the record number of COVID patients at the hospital. Um, as of today, we had 115 in the hospital. 20 of those were ICU status. 17 of them are in our actual ICU. So I'll speak to what we're doing with ICU capacity. Um, about 41% of the patients are hospitalized for COVID as opposed to with COVID. Um, so again, that gets, speaking to the primary diagnosis of COVID versus there for something else and it's incidentally found. Um, 
66% of the patients are unvaccinated. Interestingly enough, I did um, count up today. So of the patients that are fully vaccinated in the hospital um, and boosted, that only makes up five of the 114. So basically, if you've been vaccinated and you've been boosted, it is highly protective against ending up in the hospital. Um, so I wanted to share that information. Uh, we continue to see that a majority of our ICU patients are unvaccinated. And uh, with regards to the ICU, we have been um, making some changes to really be able to try to extend ICU care outside of the actual ICU because we've had patients that are critical care in the emergency department um, waiting for bed transfers uh, through the C4 uh, state center. Um, they may or may not get a bed. So regardless, they need to get that critical level of care uh, while we wait for the transfer. We've also made some ICU beds up on the fourth floor of our hospital, which prior to this is a what we call it a progressive care unit. So it was a heart monitor unit, but it was not an ICU per se. So we have um, been able to secure some additional ICU level nursing uh, and uh, have been also expanding our uh, ICU doctor workforce with advanced practice providers redeployed from some other areas to help us take care of the patients. So wanted to let this group know about that. Uh, you know, I know Dr. Culpepper presented a statistic earlier today just about the likelihood of being hospitalized uh, if you haven't been vaccinated. There's been a, a variety of numbers thrown around, um, but it, it's clear vaccination does in fact help. Uh, the data that he presented earlier showed that in October, if you were unvaccinated versus vaccinated, you had five times the risk of being diagnosed with COVID and 14 times the risk of dying. Um, if you add boosters onto that, um, if you're boosted or you're unvaccinated in comparison to those that have been boosted, 10 times the risk of COVID, uh, of a COVID diagnosis and 20 times the risk of dying. So I'm just trying to uh, send home the message that getting the additional dose is um, important. And so if you're eligible for that, if it's been six months after the primary series, that is something that one should really consider doing. Uh, National Guard, I wanted to speak a little bit about that because I know that we've had some discussions on that topic in the past. Uh, they did arrive yesterday, January 12th. We have 25 personnel from the National Guard uh, that were deployed to our testing facility, our testing tent to assist with uh, drive-up testing. Um, we have seen a decrease in numbers, so wouldn't you know it, like once you get the reinforcements in, the numbers decrease a little. But uh, but nonetheless, they've been a great asset. Um, they are non-clinical, so I think I mentioned on a prior call that you know they would likely be non-clinical because otherwise you're sucking clinical resources out of another facility someplace. So. Um, but that's okay. Like we have been uh, really working to develop opportunities for non-clinical staff to support the front line. So we will have uh, a use for them no matter where, where they are. We have seen, like I mentioned, a slight decrease at our testing uh, tent. We had at, at the peak during this surge performed around a thousand COVID tests a day. So we're, we're down a little bit. So that's good. Our positivity rate has also trended down a little bit as well. Still quite high, obviously, but a little bit, little bit better. Uh, vaccination status. I think there was a question that uh, Dr. Bookmer had sent me ahead of time about do we know um, 
do how do we count unknowns, right? And I will say that when a patient comes to our hospital, they are asked, are you vaccinated, yes or no? So there, there really is a rare circumstance where we wouldn't know. I mean, so we in our system are able to even get in to see the dates of when they were vaccinated. Uh, so unknowns in our system, really, that might be an issue elsewhere, but it's really not anything that um, that we end up dealing with. I think I mentioned last week that the Frederick Health Medical Group did open an upper respiratory uh, clinic. The idea there was to try to offload and cohort some of the patients that are likely positive for COVID. And so we have opportunities at the Liberty practice and then in Mount Airy for patients to come. And I believe those appointments are every 15 minutes to really try to move folks through, trying to offload the emergency departments, offload the urgent care centers, and then get patients the care they need in a relatively quick fashion. Uh, using that venue as a, I mean, obviously you can pre prescribe Paxlovid or Molnipiravir or the monoclonals from any, any place, but that those areas are really well-versed in when they're appropriate and trying to get folks into, um, into the system to get those, those treatments. Uh, and then finally, I was just going to report on the monoclonal antibody clinic. Like most things COVID, this has been very fluid and somewhat dependent on supply. Uh, this week, we only got a very limited supply of the citrovimab, which is the Omicron effective monoclonal. Uh, so we did deploy, I believe we had 12 doses total, so we deployed that. We are getting about 60 doses next week, which is really good news. We are no longer administering the other two monoclonals that we've been doing previously because we know, based on the data that Dr. Brookmeyer sent, that it's Omicron. That's what we're dealing with now there's very little anything else uh, so we will continue to try to make sure the hours of that clinic are well known for the clinicians in the community I mean it is fluid obviously depending on the supply of monoclonal that we get uh, we are also looking at um, our ability to administer outpatient remdesivir this is something that you may have heard about it's been, been talked about in the in the community as well um, there are some logistical challenges with that because it is a three-dose infusion, so you'd have to have a patient come back three days in a row. Uh, so that, you know, poses its scheduling issues and, and, you know, it has to be a certain patient that's committed to the treatment and whatnot. So we, we are looking at that, but the good news is we have enough citrovimab this week that we're going to be able to use that in our clinic uh, for the coming week. So those are the updates I had, and I'd be happy to take any questions you may have.